So anybody seen these medication commercials lately? Is it just me or does it seem like the, the negative side effects just outweigh the primary issue now? So, I mean, you can have a, a headache problem and you see this commercial that says you got a headache and you're thinking, yeah, I do have a headache. And it's, it, it gives you then these side effects of saying, well, if you have a headache, this will solve your problem, but there's a few side effects. And you're thinking, yeah, I'll, I'll listen to that. But then they reel down this list of side effects, and they're like, you might have uh, nausea or shortness of breath or migraine or uh, blurred vision or dizziness. And you start to think to yourself, well, you know what? I'll just take the headache, okay? I'll pass on all of that. But typically, these commercials don't end that way, right? You go into this mode at the end of the commercial where you get this guy just jumping around joyfully on the beach. He has his dog. He has his kids. And then they eventually get to how you should start feeling and the signs that you have if the medication is working. And so it gives you these benefits of you'll feel this way, you'll feel that way. And that's a good thing to have. Well, Paul in Colossians 3 does the same thing. He starts us off with our last study, and he gives us these negative earthly feelings or these earthly attitudes that we have in our life. They're full of what we talked about before, anger and, and sex-related things, and they're all earthly. They're our old self. But praise God, he doesn't stop there because in our passage today, he transitions and finally gives us these attitudes that we should have in our new self. And I can tell you that they overwhelmingly outweigh the negatives that were talked about in the previous passage. And praise God for that. So we don't have to sit there and wonder about the negatives when we have an overwhelmingly positive attitude in our new self. And you and I need to understand that. And we need to know exactly what these positives, these, these attitudes of our new self are. Because you see, if we know that, then we can spot check our lives. We can evaluate our lives and make sure that we're on track. Not on track to recovery like the medication, but that we're on track to what God's calling us to be in our new self and what our attitudes and behaviors should be, being a new creation in Christ. And you see, if we, we don't get that right, if we don't get that right, then we can be doing a lot of great things, a lot of good things that on the outside, on the externals, the surface, it might have somebody say, hey, you're, you're a good godly man. You're doing great things. It might feel good and it might look good, all the while, we might be completely missing the mark on the attitudes and the motives that drive those behaviors, which can lead us down the wrong direction. Well, in order for us not to miss the mark, in order for us to know that we're on the right track, that our motives are pure and our attitudes are pure, then I want us to open our Bibles up to Colossians 3 and see exactly what Paul describes as our motives and attitudes and what our new self should look like in Christ and make sure that our lives and our behaviors and our motives are aligned with that. So if you haven't already, let's go ahead and turn your Bibles to Colossians 3, starting in verse 12. Colossians 3, starting in verse 12. It says this, it says, put on then. What is then? Then, as Paul continues to do, is refer to what he just said. So in verse 10, he says, put on your new self. So he's saying, then, if you have your new self, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, 
compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, what are these things? The five things that we just listed, those behaviors, above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, the body of Christ. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. See, last week was Thanksgiving, and I had an opportunity to smoke a turkey. And so I'm standing over this smoke pit for five, six hours. And I'm not a big fan of turkey, but one thing that I do know is arguably one of the most flavorful pieces is the turkey leg. And so as I'm cooking this turkey, I have my mind fixated on, I got to have me a piece of that turkey leg. And so as I'm carving, we had guests over, and and I didn't want to be that host that says, this is mine, you can't have this. But mentally, I was doing that. But I'm a nice host, so on the external, it looked like I was open to everything. But I had my mind set on this turkey leg. So as I'm carving it, in my mind, it's it's set apart. I, I have it separated from everything else. That turkey leg was special to me because I wanted to enjoy the flavor, the full flavor of this smoked turkey. Well, not to compare all of you to turkey legs, but that's not the point. The point is, As God's chosen ones, we too are set apart, and we too are seen as special in God's eyes. And he calls us holy and and beloved, saying that he has this, this interest in you and I. God, the creator of all things, has an interest in you. He cherishes you. He loves you. Praise God for that. But it's not for us to get stuck on, hey, I, I feel good. He loves me because of what I do. Because Ephesians 1.4 makes it very clear. He chose us before the foundation of the world. So before you can do anything, before you can think that you're better than what you are, he had already chose you, set you apart, cherished you, loved you. You were special in his eyes. So God said, if I chose you, then this is what I want you to to act like as a child of mine. And this is how I want you to behave as a child of mine. And knowing that that's God's calling for us, we ought to embrace that. And we ought to fully run after these behaviors and attitudes that signify that we are in Christ. And we need to embrace our new behaviors. And that's our first point this morning. I want you to write it down this way. Embrace your new behaviors. Embrace your new behaviors behaviors. And you see, we need to get a firm grip on these new behaviors that we're embracing here because they're in direct opposition to what we used to be in our old self. And while you got your Bibles open, glance your eyes back up to verse 8, which we talked about last time, and just refresh our minds on what the old self is, what was 
spewing out of our lives before we were in Christ. It says you, you had anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk was coming from your mouth. Okay, so you have those that you used to be, but then Paul's saying once you're made new in Christ, your new self has these things, compassionate. Well, compassionate sounds a lot like the direct opposite of anger. If you got somebody that's compassionate, they care about, you know, your misfortunes in life. They care about the things that are happening to you that are, are, are not necessarily good. Well, if you're angry, you're excited that somebody's hurting, right? You have this hate in your heart, so you want to see them do bad. Direct opposition. Direct opposition to kindness is you're being nice and helpful and, and supportive of somebody. Well, opposite of that is what we talked about last time is that malice that meanness, that slandering somebody, insulting somebody, and that obscene talk, that filthy language. That's not nice. That's not kind. That's the direct opposition of that. Well, then you have humility and meekness, which is being humble and being gentle. We'll look up at the previous passage. What's the opposite of that? That wrath, right? You're not gentle and nice and, and just uh, humble about things. You're wrathful. You lash out at people direct opposite. And so Paul was intentional when he was writing this letter. letter. It's not like he just spewed on a whole bunch of attitudes that we should have, you see. And then he gets into patience. But patience, he takes his time on this one, you see. He, he, he explains it himself. He says, patience is bearing with one another. So not reacting or not necessarily being revengeful, but being able to put up with your brothers in Christ knowing that we're not going to agree on every single thing, being able to bear with people, have patience, not responding right away, but taking it in and having patience. And you see, he, he was so intentional with these. If you look in Ephesians 4, verse 2, and you can jot that down as a reference. You don't have to turn there. But Ephesians 4, verses 2, he uses three of the very same attitudes in Ephesians when he's talking to them. It says in verse 1, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy, worthy of the calling. And then he gets to describing what that, that, that manner is. He says, with all humility and gentleness, which meekness shares the same Greek word as gentleness here. So humility and meekness with patience, bearing with one another in love. And so Paul is, is, is intentional about that. And think about it for a moment. Just those three, humility, gentleness, and patience. Why is he intentional about those? Well, think about your life for a second. Those three attitudes, those three behaviors are extremely difficult to get a grip of. It's extremely difficult to be humility or talk humble, right? It's extremely difficult. It's so much easier for me not to be humble and say, you know what, that work project that I did, that was all me, because I'm good. It's easy, so much easier to be arrogant. Well, it's, it's, so it's so easy not to be gentle. You know, at the snap of a finger, if your wife or your kids do something wrong, it's just so easy to lash out. We're good at that because that was our old self. That was what our life was full of. And it's so easy not to be patient. And Paul takes his time with patience because that's arguably one of the most difficult things to do, is to be patient. 
But you see, it's so easy not to be patient. Just think about when you're driving and somebody cuts you off on the road. At the snap of a finger, you can lose your control and you can get angry and mad and upset and not be patient, especially when we have a culture that's full of it. But God calls us to be different. He's brought us to our new self, so he calls us to be different from the rest of the culture. Paul's saying, have patience in all of that. Having patience with believers is what Paul is, is talking about here in our passage. This Christian community that they have at the Colossian church, he, he's saying, have patience with them. Why? Because Christ has already forgiven them, just like he's forgiven you. So if Christ is able to have patience and forgive them, then you and I should definitely have more patience. And you see, even within the church, we're going to have a lot of disagreements. And I was just talking about this this morning with the brothers. There's more disagreements. There's more divisions within the church now than ever. Because first, we used to have divisions just on theology and biblical things and things around the church. But then now we're having divisions on society and elections and uh, how should we wear masks? Should we, how should we greet people? How close should we stand together? Should we be inside? Should we be outside? All of these divisions, Satan's continuing to slice, slice, and slice to divide. But God's word is telling us, be patient with one another. Be forgiving. Understand. And Paul, Paul says this in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He describes this, this is in saying or in showing God's patience. He says, God is so patient because he takes somebody like me, the foremost of sinners. I love how Paul puts it that way. He's like, look, you think you're good at sin? Dude, I'm the greatest of all time at sin. I'm the foremost of sinners. I'm, I'm the worst one. And God shows his perfect patience with me. It was on display because he took somebody like me that was killing Christians, changed my heart, gave me a new self in Christ, and then made me arguably the, the most important focal point outside of Christ in the New Testament. So he's showing his perfect patience, and if God can do that, you and I should be able to do that as well. Well, that patience just doesn't stick within the Christian church, in our Christian community. It should overflow with patience with non-believers as well. And again, imagine the context of, of the church in, Col in Colossae. It was, you have a church here that's being infiltrated by false teachers. And you have these false teachers that are coming in telling the Colossians, who are relatively new believers, that, hey, that stuff that Paul told you, that's not it, dude. That's not right. You're silly for just believing that in Christ alone you're good. You've got a whole bunch of, of things that you need to do on top of that. And if I can imagine and take it a step further, they weren't nice about it. And I can know that because I can look at our culture and see that they're not nice about it either. Very rarely, very rarely do you get people saying, hey, you know what? I heard you talking about Christ. Christ alone, through faith alone saves. Tell me more about that. I want to know more because I, I think, you know, I, I have my own opinion, but I think you're right. Of course they're not saying that. They're saying what we hear today is, you're foolish. You're, 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 you're stuck in, in, in history, right? And that's just dumb. And if you don't conform to the rest of the world, then we're going to shame you out. We're going to cancel you out. 
That's what they're saying. But what does Paul say? What does God's word say? Be patient. I know that's happening. I know they're saying that. I know they're reviling against you, but be patient. Be patient. Not reacting, not seeking revenge, not thinking that Christ's words needs defense, it needs help. It's just saying be patient. And that's what we're called to do. Well, verse 13, he, he goes on to assume that because we're sinners, because we're, we're all unique and we all have our, our own thought processes, even though ultimately they should reside in Christ, Paul says, if one has a complaint against another, so if you're finding fault, if somebody has, has wronged you, he's saying forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So he, he's not saying, you know, you probably won't have a situation where you need to forgive somebody. He's saying when it happens, when this happens, when somebody wrongs you or when, when you find fault in somebody, what should you do? He's saying forgive. Your response should be to forgive. But that's so hard. That's so hard to forgive. You don't understand. Let me just explain to you what this person has done to me. It doesn't matter, guys. God's saying none of that matters. Forgive. One, because if you're dealing with a Christian, as I mentioned, Christ has already forgiven them. So you also must forgive. But then two, if you're dealing with a non-Christian, it's important for us to look at all the sins that we've done against Christ and know that he's forgiven us. We're forgiven. We read in our DBR this morning in 1 John, if we think we don't sin, then we're deceiving ourselves. We're calling God a liar. So we've all sinned, but understanding that we've been forgiven, so we also must forgive. It, 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 Christ illustrates the story in Matthew 18 when he talks about the, the parable of the unforgiving servant. You, you remember this. You have this master and a servant. Servant owes the master 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. It's a lot. And so he's coming to his master, and he's begging and pleading his master, please forgive me. I promise you I'll pay you back. Just give me time. And what does the master tell him? Don't worry about it. I forgive you. And matter of fact, on top of me forgiving you, I'm going to wipe your slate clean. You no longer have that debt. But then the unforgiving servant, who you and I can relate to probably more than the master, way more than the master, he says, great. Thank you. And what does he do? He goes to his fellow servant and say, hey, you owe me money. And you owe me a few thousand denarii, which if you compare denarii to talents, it takes thousands among thousands of denarii just to equal one talent. So you see there's a huge disparity here, a difference. The master has forgiven him of a lot. And then he goes and chases after a fellow servant for a little and not only does he chase after him, he chokes him out, throws him in prison because he owes him a little bit. And the rest of that parable goes, the master finds out, and he says, you wicked servant. I forgave you of everything. I wiped the slate clean. And what do you go do? You go get mad at somebody because they owe you a little bit? And he throws him in prison and makes him work to pay back all of that, which, of course, he can't. You see, when we don't forgive, we basically tell God, hey, God, I, I know you forgave me, but this person that's wronged me, 
they've done more to me than I've done to you. And that can't be the case. We need to forgive and be patient as God has forgave us and been patient with us. You see, there's two occasions here in, in our passage where Paul just wonderfully ties up everything that he says. He puts a nice bow on it and packages it up together well. Here's one of them right here in verse 14. It starts off that way. So he gives us our five behaviors, and then he goes into verse 14, and he says, above all these, above all those things that I just mentioned to you, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Be thankful. I don't know about you, but one of the most weirdest feeling things that we oftentimes don't think about, and it's often uncomfortable as well, and it's happened to me a couple times when I've traveled for work, is forgetting a belt. You don't realize how important a belt actually is until you don't have one. And it just throws everything off. It just makes you feel weird. Because a belt binds everything together. It serves a huge purpose. And although it's the last thing that we think to grab and last thing that we put on, it's responsible for holding your pants up. It's responsible for keeping your shirt tucked in. And what they really don't market it for, and I think it's genius and they should, it's an accountability tool. So when you're, you don't want to step on the scale, it's a quick reminder once you used to be able to get to that third and fourth notch and you're fighting to get to that first notch that you need to do something different with your diet plan. They should market that more, but they don't. That's not the point here. But the point here is the belt in itself binds everything together. When you start off your day, it holds everything in place, and it makes sure that everything else can function properly. Well, that's what Paul is talking about with love. You see, when we have love in the midst of all of those five things, above all of those five things that we talked about earlier, those behaviors, it binds it all together, and it allows those five behaviors to work at their full potential because it's bound up with love. And pretty much anything, anything that's bound up with love as the driving force and the motivation behind it would be a good thing. And knowing that as Christians, knowing that love should be the motivation behind everything, we should ensure more that that's the driving force in everything that we do. And I put this down for point number two. Let's write it down this way. Is ensure your motive is always love. Ensure your motive is always Love. Love. It, it, it should surround everything that we do because the Bible tells us and explains to us love is the, the most important aspect and the more, most important quality that a Christian can have. It's above, it says it's above all five of the things that we just listed here in verse 12. Then Paul, Paul puts it also in Galatians 5, when we think about the fruit of the Spirit, what's the first one? Love. And Jesus in, his, in the Gospels also talks about, when we, when we think about the great commandment, what is the greatest commandment the Pharisees asked Jesus? He said, love God and love your neighbor. And you see, so love is flowing through everything. Love is the most important attribute and quality that we can have as a Christian. But we got to be careful there. We got to be careful. Why? Because you can do loving things and it not be loving. You can do loving things and it not necessarily be loving. What I mean by that is it's not just the action there, you see, because I can, I can go serve someone's needs. 
If someone's hurting in the church or someone's had financial difficulties, I can go provide a meal. I can go do nice things. Externally, it's a good thing. That's a loving thing to do. But it's not loving if I'm only doing it because I want you to see that I did that. And I want you to recognize me for being a good godly person. And that was my entire motive behind going to serve somebody is ultimately for my recognition. You see, I I can go buy my wife flowers. On the surface, to you and I, you're a good husband. You're a loving husband. But you see, if I'm only doing it with the motivation because my accountability partner tomorrow is going to ask me, when's the last time I did something nice for my wife? Or I'm doing it because I want it to hopefully lead to sex. Then that loving thing becomes unloving because the motivation behind it is not done with love. And that's so easy to do. So easy for us to do. And so what is love? What is love? Turn to 1 Corinthians with me, chapter 13, because Paul explains it very well. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And when I say what is love, that song from the 90s just popped in my head for some reason that keeps rehashing itself. It's just, what is love? It's just dumb. Anyway, who cares about what that guy thinks what is love? Let's talk about what God's word says love is. Starting in in verse 1, chapter 13, it says, If I speak in tongues of men and of angels. So if he's saying, if it appears that I have this this tight relationship with God, that that I'm speaking in tongues, that I'm, I'm, I'm super close to God from the external. And he says, but have not love, all I am is a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So to you and I, I appear to have this tight, close relationship but it's nothing. It's just noise. Verse 2, it says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, I'm the smartest guy in the room. I, I appear to be this, this, this well-known scholar and understand all the mysteries and knowledge, and I have all the faith, faith to remove mountains. Jesus said, faith of a mustard seed, we can move mountains. I got all of that, but I don't have love. What does it say? I am Nothing. Then he goes on to say, even more so, if I give away all that I have, Christ often said, be willing to give away everything to follow me. Give up everything to follow me. I give away all that I have. I even deliver my body up to be burned, sacrificed. I'm doing all of that on external. It's like, wow, that person's super godly. But then Paul says, but I have not love. I gain nothing. Out of all that, I gain nothing. If I don't have love, love is patient and kind. We see those words in our passage. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with truth. Then verse 13 drops down and says, so now faith, that's a great thing, hope, a great thing to have, and love, abide. These three, these three big components. He says, but the greatest of these is love. So above all of those things, love. So what does that tell us? What does that tell us? It tells us this. There's absolutely nothing we can do, nothing, as the word tells us, that we can do that's pleasing to God if we don't have love. Nothing. To you and I on the surface, it looks great, 
But none of that matters to God if we don't have love as our motive for doing the things that we do. Paul then gets into verse 15 and he says, we ought to let the peace of Christ rule. Rule, that Greek word means brabuo, and that is an umpire or a judge. And it's similar to what we see in a sporting event. Right? You have this person that's in a neutral position that's responsible for pushing the game along, that's responsible for enforcing the rules or making decisions when the two opposing teams are up in arms and they don't know what to do. The referee, the judge, is responsible for deciding what's next. And if you're a sports fan, you know it's total chaos having a referee out there just because they're not perfect. But then just imagine not having one. It's even more chaos when you just allow the two teams that are going at it to make the decision. But as a follower of Jesus Christ, we don't have to rely upon uh, any human being, any person that's not perfect to rule our life. Paul is telling us that Christ needs to rule our lives. So if we get to a point where we need to, to make a decision, Christ needs to be the one to make that decision. And it doesn't need to be the internet. It doesn't need to be the local news station because, quite frankly, all they're doing is fueling what you think already. The internet is is, is built to fuel your search, what you look at. And so while you think you got all the right answers, the internet is just fooling us with that. And so we're not to look to any created beings. We're to look to the person that created all, that was able to live this life perfectly and allow him to rule, to be the decision maker in any type of differences that we have with anybody. And so where you and I get in trouble is we may start off with the right intention and say, you know what, I, this, this should happen, and I feel like this is the best thing. But when we get in the heat of battle of things, when we start to argue a little bit, it tends to get one-sided. And as much as you, as much as I, think that we're always 100% correct in these situations, guess what? The other person thinks that they're 100% correct too. Well, somebody has to be wrong. That's why Paul is saying the deciding factor needs to be Christ in all that we do. So how do we apply this? Two things that we can ask ourselves when we get in these situations where we have differences with others. The one is being able to ask myself, is what I'm doing, is what I'm arguing, is it pleasing to Christ? Is it pleasing to Christ? And then the second thing to ask myself is, are my actions loving? Are my motives behind what I'm driving after, is it for love or is it for myself? You see, because once we settle in love, then Paul is trying to get them to look at this because it will then strengthen the church. It will create this unity within the church as opposed to when we start doing things to please ourselves and not have love intervene. It might look good on the outside, but then it causes this wedge that happens within the church, and Paul is trying to protect them from that. Getting back to our passage in verse 16, it says this. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and abundantly. Let let your, your life reflect Christ, the words of Christ, how Christ lived. That should just flow out of our body. It should dwell in us richly, and that will lead to teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through 
him. And so letting the, world, the word of Christ dwell in us, that means the, everything in our life should reflect Christ in his life. It should be everything we say and everything we do, people should look at us and say, that, see an image of Christ through us. And that's letting the word dwell in us richly and, and abundantly. But how do we get that? It just doesn't show up. Well, it goes back to, there's no surprises here, being in the Word. Understanding who Christ is and what Christ has done will allow it to richly dwell within us and pour out of us. And so we need to be in in constant study and meditation and applying God's Word and not banking on what we've learned and what we've known for years and years. Because God's Word is, is living and active, Hebrews tells us. And so you can read something last year, read the same thing this year, and get a, a brand new revelation of it, not because there's different words on the page, because God's illuminated your mind because now you're ready for it, and maybe previously you weren't ready for it. So anytime that we skip out on missing God's word, we're missing out on an opportunity to, to learn more about God than what he has us prepared for in this current time. And so it, it, it's like my kids, we sit at the dinner table sometimes, and they'll sit there and say, I'm so thirsty. I need water. But what they don't realize is there's an abundance of water a few steps away right there in the kitchen. And so a lot of times I have to tell them, stop being lazy, get up and go get the water. And that can satisfy that thirst that you have right now. And as ridiculous as that might seem that kids complain about being thirsty and it's sitting right there, you and I do the same thing with God's word. You see, we complain about life and say life is so hard and why is this happening and what am I supposed to do and I'm anxious and I'm stressed out and and I'm having financial troubles, whatever it might be, and we try to figure it out ourselves and it just leaves us thirsty. Instead of going and picking up God's word that's right there, it's right on your nightstand, right on your coffee table, right on your bookshelf, right within arm's length, knowing that it can fulfill all of our needs and it can satisfy any of those concerns and thirst that we might have. See, when you, when you have the word of Christ dwell in you, then it leads to the, the teaching, which is the positive presentation of God's word. It leads to the admonishing, which is steering clear and, and, and teaching and warning somebody about the danger that they're headed to. It leads towards singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanks, thankfulness and appreciation and not having an obligation to reading God's word. So in, in our passage, this is the second instance where, God, where Paul makes it very clear that he, he just bundles it up very nicely and puts a bow on it. As he says it right here. He says, whatever you do, in everything that you do, do it for Christ. Do it in the name of Christ. And you and I need a, a, more of that in our lives. We need to be doing more for Christ in everything that we do. And that's our third point this morning is we need to exemplify Christ in everything. Exemplify Christ in everything. See, Christ needs to be the priority of everything in our life. Everything. That, that means there's not a split of the work version of you, the home version of you, and the church version of you. Christ wants authority and priority over every facet of your life. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
You see, exemplifying Christ in our life is a sign of thankfulness. It's a sign of, of, of saying thank you to God because we're using and applying what he's given us as a gift in Jesus Christ. You see, if you were, if you were to give a gift to a kid and they just marveled over it, they were so excited about it, and they started to put it to use right away, you'd feel, th- you'd feel like they're giving you thanks because they're putting it to use. Well, if you were to give that same kid a gift and he were to say, thanks, throw it behind him and keep doing what he was doing, you probably wouldn't be too happy, right? You'd be a little frustrated on like, are you serious? I just gave you a gift and all you want to do is put it aside and continue to do what you were doing? Well, that's what we do to Christ when we don't show thankfulness and we don't exemplify Christ as God's gift to us and live our life like him. See, the goal of the Christian life is to be more like Christ day after day after day and to continue to exemplify Christ in all that we do, bring him glory and honor in all facets of our life, everything. You see, when we, when we exemplify Christ, that then gives somebody that Christ or that God has put in our lives an entry point to Jesus. Just by them looking at your life, can have them inquire more about who Christ actually is and lead them closer to him. And so it, it strengthens our witness. It, it creates unity within the church, and it shows thankfulness to God when we exemplify Christ. Well, every fourth Saturday um, here at the church, when I'm out with Compass Active, I get this constant reminder of uh, there's certain things in life I'm just not gifted at. And that thing that I see every fourth Sunday is the fix-it ministry. God's not given me a gift to fix things. Matter of fact, I'm probably a make-things-worse type ministry guy. So it's just, it's not a gift that I have. But some guys are very gifted at it, and I see them, and they're working hard, and they're doing great things. Uh, I won't ever be there. So, uh, but, but what I do know is I've gotten slightly better. And a lot of it is due to YouTube. In YouTube, they have these instructional videos when you're working on a project, and it gives, I, I like the instructional videos that gives you step-by-step. Step. Like every 30 seconds, they say, this is what it should look like. Make sure it looks like this. You see, I need that because I need to have something every step of the way to let me know that I'm on track, that I'm going down the right path. Otherwise, it'll be a disaster. But you see, when I have that, then eventually, in the end, I'm able to get to where I need to be and accomplish the end goal. Well, you see, in the Christian life, if you're a believer in Christ, your end goal is already set, and it's been given to you. It's been gifted to you by God with eternal life. So you're not trying to achieve an end goal because you already have it. But what this passage should remind us is there are things that we need to make sure of. We need to be able to evaluate in our life to ensure that we're headed down the right path, that we're doing these things that God calls us to do with being our new self in Christ, and we're doing them with the right motives. And all of our life is aimed at pleasing Christ and exemplifying Christ more and more every day. And when we do that, by doing that, it shows a thankfulness to God for what he's given us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just... uh, we thank you so much for, for making us new. We thank you for giving us 
new life and a new self and new motives and new behaviors that we can have uh, that we didn't have before. And maybe we may have acted like we had them before, but we didn't have these motives and these behaviors. We didn't have the love that you're calling us to have that should be the driving force in all that we do. And Lord, so I pray that you would help us to be more like you, because it's difficult in this world, Lord. Our culture is countercultural to everything that you list a Christian to, to do and be and to act like. The world tells us differently. And so I pray that you would give us the strength and let us have a constant evaluation to ensure these behaviors, these Christian uh, virtues that you've give us, given us in your word, that we can constantly evaluate our lives to ensure that we're on track with how you're calling us to be in Christ. We thank you for your word, Lord, and I pray um, that it be pleasing to you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.